Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm with Harpram Dua. How are you, Prem? I'm very good, thank you. I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to have you just on the other end of this line. When was the last Likewise, time? Michael. Yeah, seriously. Like we we've done this before, right? But it was a while ago. It was back at Echelon that time, wasn't it? It was, it was. At that time you were doing the well, I was upgraded, right? I did the video conference with you and now I'm just doing a voice conference. <laughs> I think this is actually an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it all depends on the audience. Fair enough. I mean I have a I have a face for radio, so for me this is perfect. <laughs> You're a good looking guy, so it's not fair. Fair enough. Um, but a lot has changed since then as well. Yeah, I think it has. for both it has. of us, but for you, was... right? For sure. Yeah, at that time I was still working at uh, Orami. Right. It was. Was it Orami or was it Moxie then? Still. At the, yeah, it was still called Moxie. Actually, actually, it was called Moxie Build now. So just before they changed their name to Orami. Right. That was wow. That was the end of 2015. I think it was November or December. So it was a long time ago, about a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit more. Time flies. Wow. So why don't we talk about what you were doing first? I mean, I thought that whole idea, right, of when they kind of picked you up out of that pet project that you were working on, for lack of a better term, mm. and brought you into the pet business. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? There's a lot of background, actually, before that. So if you want, we want to tell the story, right, who you are, what you're doing, and why you're doing it. Do you want to back up to when you were a broker? I want to back up to when I was born. <laughs> Do that. I have yeah, time. So. My name is Prem, uh, you know, born March 4th, 1987, you know, 30 year old, 30 years old right now. Uh, born into a Indian family based in Thailand. You know, they've been living here for like 60, 70 years when I was born. So now they're up to like 90 years. Wow. So third generation Thai. Third. Yeah. Wow. Good yeah, stuff. It's been a while. My family's been here for a while. And in not a single day in their 60, 70 years that they've been in Thailand have they ever worked at a job. It's always been entrepreneurship. It's always been entrepreneurial, and that's sort of ingrained in my blood. So I always sort of knew that I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to run a business. I want to be the head. I, I didn't want to be the feed. I didn't want to be any other part of the body. Right. I had to be the head or nothing else, or at least as close to the head as possible. Fair enough. And, I mean, you've, your family's yeah. founded a couple of businesses as well, right? When you arrive in a foreign country, at the time, at least three generations ago, it wasn't like they stepped into an established business, right? No, not they at all. You, you, they, they, came here. they came here with the clothes on their back and a little bit of money to trade, essentially. So what they first started doing was buying and selling, uh, you know, buying from one source where they would have to, you know, waste their time. So at that time, the resource that they had was time. Right. And they invested a lot of that. Go to one place, buy it, and, you know, sell it at retail and make the margins and take that margins and go back and buy more and go back and sell more and just kept doing that. And then it grew into, an, like, you know, a pretty stable business has been running for like 80 years now I guess what, and from there what, we are what sector was the business in at least initially and even to today textiles textiles still in textiles yeah okay wow incredible do you do you ever think about like what life was like when I guess it was grandma and grandpa like first arrived and I'm pretty sure they didn't come alone right they came with their friends. Like, they knew other people that were coming from their villages, but, like, that that's it. You know, you're not coming with the whole family because they're diversifying as well, right? They're hedging their bets. So, right. first, like, my like, – yes, it is literally like that. Like, my no. granddad had uh, three, four brothers. So, like, you know, first one or two brothers would come. The other two would stay in India. Then they'd write a letter and say, okay, come now. It's okay. We've got something going. We've got work for you to do. Right. And, then, you know, slowly, slowly you brought family members back and forth. 
Yeah, I mean, I know exactly what that's like, right? When you know, my grandparents essentially did the same thing when they ended up in the United States, and they sent the same letter back to their family. I'm still alive. I have <laughs> yeah. I have food. It's essentially what it was for my grandfather. Right, but and again, that was only three generations ago. So fair enough. Exactly. I mean, I guess everyone went through the similar journey here. Like, uh, the only thing I took away from that is like, you know, eventually hard work does pay off. It's not just hard work either; it's smart work, right? Right. right. Because my family, what they did was, you know, when they made that money, they didn't just squander it. They saved. My granddad's a big saver, so he saved that money. He invested it in other different things. So now our family businesses range from like, you know, trading textiles to manufacturing of uh, embroidery to properties and hotel management, that sort of thing. So. And all expanded from textile, and their business is still running. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is you don't get rich by spending money, and you definitely don't stay, like, invested, and you don't stay successful by buying really big things. You just reinvest that money back in a business continuously. Exactly. And that's what they've been doing, and that's sort of the mindset that I've always had. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I want to be able to, you know, I'm the only son, so I know from, I'm the only, I'm the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son. Wow. So I have a lot of, like, yeah. There's no, so there's no pressure on you. That's fine. You just skate through easy. It'll be like my Game of Thrones title, like, you know, third oldest son of the oldest son. I know. Yeah, exactly. No pressure, and the only son of the oldest son as well, so. Yeah, so um, I know eventually up. I'm going to have to yeah eventually I'm going to have to take over the conglomerate if you can call it that or the family business but you know it comes to a point where I look at myself and say you know what I have to prove myself I can't just go in and work there I mean I, I can but I'm always going to be their son I'm always going to be their grandson and are they going to listen to me or take me for myself until like I'm working for them for like 30 years then they start seeing the value right. or do I prove myself outside and, so, and go back and show them look I've done this outside before other people can trust me you can trust me to take care of your family and everything that you've built Right. I mean, in a way, that's, that's been my motivation. Yeah. And in a way, it's really interesting, right? Like where most parents will say to their children when they and I'm picking a, a time in, in place, right? But when they graduate from college, they'll say, do you have a job? Right. Whereas your family probably sat you down and said, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. Like, what are you going to exactly. build? Can you go build something, please? Like dinner's over. Tomorrow's like Thursday. <laughs> like what you can do nothing. And no, you weren't. But you know what I mean? Like, go do something and come home when you're successful. Luckily for me, my, my dad never actually said that to me because I started working since college. Right, and you know what I mean? Like that's the feeling, right, yeah. inside that kind of family it is. environment. That's right? that's my kind of feeling because I know, like, my family paid for my college education. It's right. it's quite different from the way Westerners do it, like where they have to take loans to pay it off, right? So my family actually gave me that college education and said, "Look, we're treating you all the way up to college. After college, like, we'll support you however you want." But it, inside of me, myself, I was always like. No, I can't just keep taking my parents' money to do whatever I want. No, no way. I got to you know, stop thinking that way. And that started since college where I started paying for all the stuff that I did there myself. Like, you know, my rent, my uh, going out traveling, vacations, air food, electricity, utilities, all of that stuff. So you, you start small. Obviously, I can't end up paying for my whole college education based on the part-time job that I was doing. Not but possibly. it was a step. Yep. And it was a step in the right direction. But look, plenty of people have the means to pay for an education and just squander it, right? Very so true. That, I, I, then that's something you would never do. No. I, mean, I don't. Don't get me wrong. I had my I had my fair share of fun in college, but that was all my own. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say you didn't have fun. I just said you didn't squander. It's a big difference. I mean, life is all about having fun too, right? It's not just nose to the grindstone forever. And to a certain extent. We will move into what you're doing now well later, but I mean, you are having fun, right? Very much so, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm when, the head of my second company. How many people can say that? 
Yeah. And you're 30, right? So, and <clears throat> like when I, when I remember sitting near you and watching you work, you never seemed like you were not having fun. And it's not easy. I enjoy people. Yeah, what you were doing was not easy, so. I enjoy people. I enjoy working with people. So as long as the environment around me is good. And luckily, I'm at a level where I can build the environment around myself. So if I'm not having fun, it's probably because I built a really crappy environment. That's I'm, I'm the only person to blame for that. So, And I'm also the only person that can probably fix it. So, you know, chances of me having fun at what I'm doing are pretty slim. <laughs> okay. So tell me, tell me a little bit more. Where do you want to go next? Yeah. So after college, you know, I came back to Thailand and I was like, you know what? My, my education was all international school. So it was very, you know, uh, American based and all English speaking. Then I went off to do my college in Australia. Again, very English, American, Western based. And I came back to Thailand. I knew I want to settle in Thailand. So I had to get back to my Thai roots. And that's when I joined a fully Thai company where you're talking about every single documentation, everything you have to do is purely in Thai. And that was a big shock for me, but I had to do that to get myself used to working with Thai people. Right, and let me just interrupt for a second. I don't think anybody can tell just from the conversation that we're having, but to say you're a fluent Thai speaker is, it's kind of an underappreciation for the level at which you speak the local language. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, it, yeah, I'm native. Native, but native is a weird word, right? I mean, for those of us that ha also speak another language, being a native speaker of a language is, is non-trivial. And it's hard yeah. to tell when you're speaking English in a way that also is native. Do you know what I mean? So I think I want to point it out that like when you say like you are a native speaker of Thai, but sitting in that office and figuring out all that documentation and the entire business culture in Thai when you're educated completely in English, it's just a complete, it's so challenging. And I don't think most people appreciate that. It very much was. And that's where I picked up a lot of skills, simple skills like reading and writing in Thai language. That's something that you don't really learn every day, right? Mm -hmm. Even even though I learned it in high school, but I never used it. I mean, you don't use a language for a couple of years. You're talking about like five, six years. Right. You tend to forget that. So yeah. It's like a bicycle, right? I mean, you never really forget the whole yeah. thing, but, but you got to get back in practice, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I worked in the stock market as a broker for two, two and a half years. And I mean, when you're working as a broker, you got to read every single piece of news that comes out about all the companies that you invested in. And all of that's in Thai. Every, every article, all, it's all in Thai. So that's where I really, really picked up all those skills back again. And that was fun. I, I thoroughly enjoyed working there. Wow. It gave me a huge skill set that I still use till today. Yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed. I worked in Tokyo for 22 years, but the entire business was all in English. I mean, there were Japanese clients, which we did take out and stuff like that, but it wasn't the immersive way you did it. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Got lucky as well, though. Yeah, Super. <laughs> well, got, super lucky, right? That. Yeah, because, because the, those, the lessons that you learned doing that, right, that complete sort of stressful environment of I really have to catch up to everybody that's around me because the rest of the staff was probably Thai, right? Pure Thai. Pure Thai. So what they were like the things that they were learning, the things that you were learning were two different things, right? Because they had already had these yeah. sort of embedded reading, writing, I can read all this stuff without thinking type of knowledge. You gotta fight your way through that. I mean I've done that too. And that's really hard work, right? I mean for them it was the reverse. It was the vice versa. For them it was the English language it was just as difficult. Sure. Like, you know, they knew how to read it, they knew how to write it, but very basic and they just needed practice. So we we'd actually trade back and forth. Like <laughs> you know, I teach them a little bit of English, they teach me Thai. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, and so, it worked out really well. So when did you stop doing that? I stopped doing that after I sort of felt like brokering or brokerage is sort of like gambling. And after a while, you do realize in a small market like Thailand, when one individual person can shift the stock by a multitude of percentage at will, <clears throat> you start realizing that, okay, you know what? Even though the fundamentals are there, 
it's not worth taking the risk or not worth risking other people's money on it. So that's when I said, you know what, I've probably had enough of this and I wanted to do my master's after that. Uh, so you did, you went back and got your master's degree. Yeah, and I did it in Thailand again because I didn't want to go overseas. I wanted to get connected to the <laughs> influential Thai people. Right, so where did you go, Sasin? Yeah, went to Sasin. Good, I mean, that's one of the best business schools, not just in Thailand, but um, in the whole region, right? So good for you, and you're right. <laughs> but it is true, though, right? And that's where you do get connected to the most influential sort of Thai learners, right, and Thai business people as well. So it's a good idea, I think, no? It was completely worth it. I mean, in my class alone, there were like sons and heads of at least five publicly listed companies. Right. Yeah, and I mean, and that's not an easy feat to do. I mean, no, you, it's a different, completely different ball game, right? Like you, you go to an Ivy League school in the states, you know, you're going to meet people who are going to be influential in the future, and there's no other way you're going to get into that group of people unless mm. you're either working with them, or you went to school with them, or you grew up with them. Correct. It's very hard to meet them in a bar and just go up and say, hey, I would like to be your friend. It doesn't happen. No, there are too many barriers there anyway. Too many natural barriers, right? But in school, everybody feels like the same. So whether it's Sassin or Harvard or Stanford or Yale, your ability to befriend somebody is much easier. It's it's a great strategy, actually. And to be fair, what you learn in business school really is how to socialize with um, your peers, maybe more than anything. (laughs) True. and I'm not diminishing what you learn, really, but, you know, the education itself. But the reality is that one of the big benefits of getting a master's degree in business is just figuring out how to interact with other potential CEOs, CFOs, and, you know, CIOs, right? I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so after business school, was that when you ended up at Ardent, or was that was there, was there a gap there? Right after business school, I was like, okay, now I've got it. You know, you're done with all your studies. I'm not going to go do a PhD, so there's no more studying for me, per se. Right. <clears throat> so it's what's next sort of thing. So at that time, the Startup Weekend was just coming up. It was the second year they were doing Startup Weekend, so I decided to join up and just completely out of the blue. It was my first time. I had no friends going. I just, being an extrovert, I just said, you know what? Let's go for it. What's the worst that can happen? Because that's honestly my motto in life. Like, what is the worst that can happen? I mean, you actually look at the, like, you know, the worst thing, nothing. You get a little, you waste a couple of nights, you waste two days. It's no big deal. Right. So went to the startup weekend. Where, where, had what, no idea, had no friends. Where was it? It was at Hubba, actually. It okay. was at Hubba Sorry, and Ekamai. So yep. it was, at that time, Hubba only had one branch. <laughs> that little house in Ekamai, that's it. They just opened it. It was brand new. That's where everything was going on. All the action was there. It was. <clears throat> yeah. Went there, uh, did the startup, did the icebreaker competition, like uh, just literally getting to know everybody that went to the startup weekend. And in that icebreaking game, we came up with the idea for social media for pets. <laughs> what a great now, idea, social media for I pets. <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not expecting pets to go online themselves, but obviously I meant dog owners or cat owners to post profiles of themselves on a social media right. that was dedicated to other pet lovers and pet animals you know, owners but what ended up happening was that because I went with no idea I found a team that was you know the icebreaker team that we had we both liked that idea we all three of us liked that idea we said you know what let's just run with this for the whole competition and see what happens and we did so we kept working at it for three days and by the end of the competition we ended up coming second Wow. But it, so you really should explain what the nature of the whole startup weekend was, right? Wasn't it one of these sort of 48 hours where you don't sleep, they bring in beer and pizza kind of thing, you're just up all hours trying to kind of hack along and try to come up with a great idea, or am I misunderstanding that? 
start weekend, well, you got two types of people. The ones that go there with their ideas and their team and they want to get the ability to pitch in front of someone influential. The other ones are the ones that go in with no idea and just want to join a team and essentially ride the wave. Right, got it. But the rest of it, you're right. It is a hackathon. Uh, people just go in there, pitch their ideas, you know, come up with something. And it's all based around two or three days, everything that you can build and show in that two or three days. So what did you guys so come we, up with? You guys come up with this idea. Table. You slept under the table. Sorry, go ahead. We slept under the table. We, you know, we, it was only three bathrooms for like 30, 40 people to share. Yucky. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to take, I, I took a, no, it's okay. I took a shower at six in the morning before everyone else woke up. Good idea. Everyone else started waking up around eight. Sorry, I got a little bit of a cough going. It's okay. Do you want to pause? For, <laughs> do you want to pause for a second and get some water? Yeah, sure. That'll be a good idea. Why don't you do that? We'll just pause for a second. Yeah. Okay. Feel better? Are we still paused? Yep, we're paused. We can start right now. And we're back. Yep. So you were saying you you woke up at six o'clock in the morning before everybody. I guess you have to get some kind of sleep when you're at one of these startup weekends. <laughs> everybody likes to say that they're up all night, but I mean, at some point, a human needs to close their eyes and shut their brain off a little bit, right? Yeah. So you slept at like two, you woke up at like six, you slept for a little bit in between, you take whatever naps you can get, like, sometimes it's like, while you're waiting for the developer to just, you know, run whatever you told him to code, or, you know, do the UI, you actually stress test on whatever he's building, you take a quick power nap, <laughs> whatever you can do, but it was, it was, I don't, the, the beautiful part of it was, I don't remember the struggles that we went through, I just remember the end results, and that's the part that I actually want to remember, because pitching up there was my first time ever pitching an idea to anyone, forget about an investor, to anyone. And in the judging panel was actually Paul, uh, Paul from Arden Capital, the co-founder of Arden Capital along with it. Wow, so who, else, who else was there? I, I, I was not there that weekend actually, but I remembered. Who else was there? Was that Fryam there? I'm just trying to remember who the team was that was judging. Paul was there. I believe there was, um, Paul Wood was there as well. You got it. Okay, he would have been. And I don't actually remember the other the other judges because, well, actually, I just don't remember. It's been a while already. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know it's been. A lo- I was just curious, right? Because I was at one of the startup weekends after that. It was probably the year later, or maybe even the year after that. And yeah. that was actually at the Arden Capital office, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, so yeah. I was just curious, like who it was. But you pitched, and how was the pitching? And how many teams were there? You said there were like forty people there. Was it like eight they teams? They were a total or? of ten teams. Yeah, eight to ten teams around there. Got it. And I pitch just and it felt natural it was just me selling an idea and honestly I'm used to selling because my job in college as part time was selling phone lines <clears throat> really? so that's easy for me yeah it came easy um, I was just and especially when you're passionate about it I mean we built it over the past three days so we were as passionate as you could get and, you know almost 72 hours focused on this one particular thing we were super passionate about it and I I just went up there, and every question that came to me, we had an answer for it. We thought about it, and every idea that they, you know, everything that about the idea that we had was conveyed to the people in the judging panel. And at the end of it, I came out and we got a round of applause when we ended the pitch. So that's always a good sign. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and at the end of it, we came second. It was a close second as well from what I remember the judges telling us. The team that came first, I still remember. Their company is called Infinity Closet, and they'd actually been working on their idea for about eight months. I remember so that lady. I remember team. that. I remember yeah. that woman. Yeah, Infinity Closet. It was a great idea, and actually, I don't even know if she's still going. But I watch because there are businesses in the United States that are based around that entire idea of you rent your clothes out, right? That your closet never ends. Her idea was actually way ahead of even the technology that made because the logistics was such a big problem there. But anyway, she, she was the winner. She was a good kid too, I think. No. No, it's definitely. I still, I still, uh, I remember her name. Her name is Maprang. I still meet her every once in a while, actually. Uh, but no, she's no longer going with that idea. No, I didn't think so. But still, I remember her pitching at Echelon as well. I thought that was a great idea. But yeah, wow. and think- also, honestly, after hearing that their company has been going on for a couple of hours, so obviously they had a lot of time to polish their idea out. Sure. And for the fact that our idea was just three days old, <laughs> I, I was pretty proud with second place and. It, it caught the attention of some of the judges, and that's how ended me the the gig at Arden Capital, becoming their entrepreneur in residence. Yeah, and then that led to Petloft. You know, I was just as we're sitting here talking, I um I typed in petloft.com, and it went right to Orami. But why don't yeah, you talk to me? It's still there. It's still there. Yeah, but Petloft was really. And you remember? I mean, we both remember because we were sitting there, you know, talking about it for, you know, who knows how long in its development, and even after it was up and running. But I mean, Petloff was really Arden Capital's first run, you know, built on top of sort of the what's new platform. But it was really, Petloff was really the first run, not at, not at just e-commerce, but at using the back end of e-commerce as its logistical uh, back end, right? So what you were doing at the time was actually groundbreaking, no? At that time, e-commerce didn't exist yet. It was still called Arden Commerce. Yeah, uh, It was right. literally built at the same time together. Like, look, we need logistics. You guys need a warehouse to put your stuff. Let's build a warehouse. We'll call it Arden Commerce. And that was the start of all of it. I remember it well. And that was uh, the good old days. I mean, everyone just joined the company, and we were all eager. We came from Lazada, Zalora, from all different, you know. And it was my first time ever having a title as a manager. I never managed people before. And obviously, you know, there were some trips and, like, you know, some mistakes that I made. But I learned quick, and from there, we just kept growing. And, you know, Petloff grew into Venby, which is a baby site. From there, we acquired Sonoga, which is health vitamin supplements. Then we opened another one called Lofema, and all under the vertical e-commerce structure. And we kept growing and growing. Then we acquired Moxie, rebranded everything to Moxie, and then eventually Moxie got funded, and that became Moxie Bilna, and now Arami. So I was, yeah, it was the start of it all. This is way before Shannon joined the company or anyone else. Yeah, I mean, it was really just, you and Sarah running both of those things, right? And until it really got to be gigantic, you guys were really driving the growth of both of those verticals and also the acquisitions of the other three verticals that you talked about. But just tell me more about it. I mean, you've kind of ran through that really quickly. I really want to understand just personally what it was like at that time. I mean, it must have been like a whirlwind to a certain extent, right? Because stuff was just moving so fast back then, I remember. Let's just say it was a very steep learning curve. I mean, it was, <laughs> I had to learn quick and I had to learn very, very fast. If I didn't, I would have been left behind. And I, I, on a, frankly speaking, I almost did get left behind as well. But I just, part of my nature is never giving up and always learning from your mistakes or at least never making the same mistake twice. So that, that really paid off and that just kept going from there. 
uh, you know, we took it organically. We like, you know, myself, I was really passionate about pets. Uh, Sarah herself, when she was there, she was really passionate about baby products. So you could see that coming out in the products that we selected for the website, the way we designed it, the content we wrote, the, the team that we hired. It was a really passionate team. I mean, for an e-commerce company starting up, we had tiny, tiny percentage turnover. I mean, we barely had like one or two person, people quit in a year. Like our core team, some of them are still there until today in Orami, actually. Up, I think about like out of the 10 original team that we had, I think five of them are still there. But what was it? What was it about back then? You think that you guys built that made people so loyal that made them not want to leave, right? I mean, we talked earlier about if you're at the top, which essentially you were back then. You know, titles aside, you guys created the environment there, right? And you created the sort of corporate culture. I mean, I know that Paul was looming around sometimes, and obviously, you know, some other people were there too. But Paul was super busy building the logistics and backend side of the business. And you know, you and Sarah really built that thing. Yeah. So, yeah. We, but we, how do you build that culture? And were you thinking about it when you were doing it, or were you just like, you know what, I'm just going to be prem. I'm going to be the prem I've always been. I'm just going to be the best version <laughs> of me. But seriously, right? Or did you, or did you logically and sort of systematically think, actually, I want people to behave in a certain way because the culture of the company is important, and you only get to build it once, right? So, did no, you think about that, or, or was it just part of who you are? To be very honest with you, I didn't think of it structurally at all. No, for me, it was purely about the fact that, look, how would I want to – in what kind of company, in what kind of environment would I want to work in? Let's just try to recreate that. And it was simple as that. Like I want to work in a company where people are comfortable talking with anybody in the company, right. where everyone gets updated at all times. Everything is shared. Everything is open. Everyone's working towards the same goal. And that's what I did. I didn't think about the word culture even because I was too young as a manager at that time to even realize how important culture is to your company. Yeah, I mean, what were you, 25 years old? Maybe 24 when you first started, no? Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, like, don't forget, this is my first experience as an entrepreneur as well. So you right. don't, at that time, was, entrepreneurship was still quite young in Thailand. There wasn't education on it. There wasn't a lot of articles around it. So everything that I had to learn was just based off reading articles and based off reading books of what people overseas had done. And it was just trying it out to see if it worked in Thailand and adapting it to make sure it worked with the Thai culture. Yeah, I mean, you're really true from a from a sort of mentor standpoint. Sure, there were people in the office that maybe could have mentored, but from a role model perspective, there was nobody. I mean, let's be fair, right? There really was nobody in the market that had built a, a proper e-commerce platform. You can talk about the Lazada team, but that was a different animal because remember back then, the elephant in the room was Rocket Internet, right? I mean, they were really... Very true. Jay were jamming really hard into this region. And yet what's interesting to me, and I was talking to somebody else about this a few weeks ago, do you hear about Rocket anymore? Remember, cause not at all. No, but I mean, not at all. They right? barely own shares anymore. But it's interesting to me because remember back then we were like, every time we thought about a vertical, whether it was a vertical business or even a new startup, we would think, hmm, what's Rocket going to do in that space? How much money will they allocate? How fast can they build that stuff? And now nobody even talks about it. Remember, Easy Taxi was the great example of this, right? Oh, no, they took $40 million of funding. They're just going to dominate the ride-hailing space. And then literally, poof, and it was gone. And that was really yeah. it, right? Yeah, exactly. But I knew one thing, though. I knew how Rocket Culture was because we hired people from Rocket, and I've heard stories. So right. that's one thing I knew that I didn't want to do because back then, Rocket was cutthroat. They were you know, going all out with the hiring and firing and you know, taking people from all the best consulting firms, paying six times the salary, that sort of thing. Right, but we know, we know, right? And 
Um, I remember when we hired Peter, right? Peter was also hired, but also invested. And when Peter came from where? From Zalora, I think it was, right? You know, he was he was proof that you don't have to be mean to be smart. Peter was really good, actually, at building, you know, being the chief operating officer of that uh, back-end business. But the reality was that, yeah, I don't think people loved working at Lazada. I mean, I, I, and, and, this is, and this is not a new opinion for me. You've heard me say this for years, both online and offline. Like, I just don't think people really enjoyed it. And I think that's one of the reasons why back in the day it was easy for you guys to hire really good people because they'd much rather work in a place where the environment was flat, like you said, where anybody can just kind of say what they're thinking in a way, you know, obviously it's not mean, but they can just say what's on their mind because they may have a better idea. Exactly. And that worked for us. That worked really well. We built a really good culture, a really good team, and they were all dedicated, like, working hard. Yeah, do you want to talk a little, like, how did it change when you really started to get big? Do you know what I mean? Like, when it was Petloff and and Venby, and and it was in that sort of early growth stage, right? You just see this sort of hockey stick of growth. But once you have, I'm trying to remember, you said it, right? Sonoga, and I don't remember the name. Lafima, right? And then Moxie, but also Bilner was out there, right? So he did a little bit of a roll-up, which the the brothers had been kind of famous for doing when it went back to um, some of their other companies, right? I mean, and Sogo was a roll-up of a few other companies as well. But once you started getting regional, that growth started getting really interesting, and just the whole business started getting fascinating, no? That was really fun. And initially, what they had done was actually hire a regional CEO to come in, and his name was Ty. Um, and that was Ty's first time in Thailand as this manager as well because he was brought in from the States. But Ty has a unique background where his parents are actually Thai, but he never actually lived in Thailand. He, right. just, he has a Thai culture. He has an understanding of the Thai culture from his parents, but he never actually lived here before. Uh, but he had a wealth of experience in e-commerce from overseas from the United States after working at Karma Loop. So he was bought in at the regional level. And obviously at that time, was I happy that it was, uh, you know, someone's coming in and becoming my boss? No. Oh, you're obviously going to have some animosity. But you know what I realized? Like after a couple of weeks, it was really clear that this guy has a wealth more experience than I do. And then the best thing that could probably have happened for me was putting him there because I learned a tremendous amount from him. Right. Look, yeah. I mean, I had this I had the same experience happen to me a couple of times, right, where I thought I was, you know, just kicking ass and taking prisoners, and then they hired somebody above me, and I thought, okay, this is just untenable, and then that person was just amazing, and you just think, okay, it is what it is, and I like, I, like you, I had that attitude of, I'm learning stuff here, how bad can it be? Exactly, and that's what it was, uh, and I learned a ton from him. I actually consider him one of my mentors because he taught me a lot of what I know and do today. Um, and at that time, that's when um, Sarah actually left the company by then, so it was just me and him. And we ran the company. We grew it from you know, 50 orders a day up to like 400 orders a day. Right. Yeah, I mean that – And that, that, was, that was the peak, <laughs> yeah. Right, and you also moved offices too, right? I mean you moved from – first of all, you moved out of the Arden Capital offices. Then you moved into the small offices all the way down Silom, and then you moved into the okay, – we into Setiwan we Tower. We were working right? above a coffee shop. We were working above a coffee shop. Like I to remember. enter our office, you had to go through a coffee shop – Walk up the second floor, so that it, it, it was it was quite weird for a lot of the people, like uh, <laughs> especially distributors and suppliers coming to our office. They, you know, they walk into the coffee store. The coffee attendant would ask them if you want any coffee. They're like, no, and they just walk straight by and go to the back and go up the stairs. Right, I'm going upstairs for diapers. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, that was really interesting actually. And that time it was, you know, we were still really young, so you might actually don't play bases. They actually rented the office space with us. So I forgot about like, that. You know, I forgot about that. Rob was in there too. Exactly. So we, we shared space with Rob and we both grew together. And yeah, it's it's such a small world. 
Yeah, and the interesting thing is, right, both of those companies, I say both, right, because Orami is now a monster in e-commerce. So it's a big company. It's it's regional. And, you know, Playbasis as well is still there too. So it's interesting that both of those companies, which started literally with just a CIO, a CEO, sorry, a couple of CEOs and an idea, they're both still operating. That's four or five years later now, right? 2012, I think, is when you started. Yep. Is that true? That's right, 2012. Wow. So in the end, though, you ended up, I mean, Orami became a really big company. You were a really big part of it, right? And like you said, the office yes. in on Soipan, Tanonpan, excuse me, you know, got to be so big. But then you kind of decided yeah. you wanted to do something else. I For me, it was, um, like, I, I realized that I peaked in e-commerce. Like, there was nothing else I was actually adding. Like, every day that I was going into the office, I was doing the same things again and again. It was the same cycle. There was no real change in what I was doing. And that's something that sort of staggered me. And I was like, you know what? I'm still at the phase where I want to learn. I'm not ready to settle yet. So I wanted, I wanted to enter something that was a completely different beast. And I... At that time, I sort of had an idea, like 2015, you're talking about like maybe early 2015, I just sort of saw the signs and said, you know what, I think fintech is going to be the next big thing. And I want, if my, if I go to anywhere, it's going to be in fintech. And <clears throat> I didn't look for any opportunities. I just sort of just, you know, kept in the back of my mind. I even said in a couple of interviews that I did at Arami that, you know what, they asked me what's the next thing for e-commerce. I said, e-commerce is going to be the norm, but the next big thing is going to be fintech. <laughs> right. And so so you're actually normal. you're actually telling someone your strategy as you're interviewing them for a job, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Uh, but what ended up happening was I got an offer to be able you know, to run this fintech, which is called Frank now. Um, and by the end of 2015, I decided to take uh, you know take them up on the offer. But that was, of course, I wanted to close the fundraising round around me first. You know, help them through everything, uh, get all the numbers, get all the due diligence done. Once that was closed, and I was no longer like. Um, you know, going to jeopardize the deal or anything else like that. I made sure I trained somebody to replace me, which is Anne, who's still running this company at the moment. Yeah, she is. Yeah, and then I left on very, very good terms. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. People like you. <laughs> so it would have been hard for you to leave on bad terms, <laughs> to be fair. Um, it was hard for me to leave as well because these are the people that I, you know, every individual person there I hired personally. I, you know, I spoke to them I, every day, had lunch with them. We had, right. we grew up together. Not, and being like your first child, like, oh, I'm going to say first child because the first company around me was like my first child. It was. Letting go of it is not an easy decision. No, you're going to watch somebody else, you know, go to their college graduation and like pay for, pay for their MBA and hug them when they get their PhD. You're like, wait, wait, that's, that's my offspring kind of thing. I mean, it, that's hard work. Right? And by that time you have to, you also worry about the fact that no one remembers that you actually did that. Then, you know, you actually built that from the start. Yeah. Cause somebody else is going to stand up on stage and take that award or whatever it means. Right. And you're going to sit there in the audience and say, yep, I got it. No problems. Congratulations to you and your team. But and that's the kind of person you are, right? You don't care, but you're right. The things move so fast that people may or may not remember. Right? Exactly. I mean, ever since I started, you know, this company Frank, which is selling insurance online. I mean, honestly, I have sort of dropped out from the startup world because I realized that going to these events and stuff, yes, it's great for networking, but it takes up way too much time, and I needed my spend every minute of my time building this company so that it could be the best possible baby number two. So how long have you been building Frank? Because when you got there, there wasn't an existing infrastructure there, was there? There was nothing. 
there was nothing. I was employee number one that was full-time on Frank. Everyone else was just interns, and we started building from scratch again the same way we did at Moxie, uh, same way we did at Moxie and Petloft. But who was your, who so, was your partner? In other words, you, you, you didn't do this by yourself, or you did? I, I honestly don't know. Didn't have a partner here. Uh, built it by myself with interns. We had investors who were helping us with some resources by getting us interns to work in Thailand for us. So the investors were based out of Hong Kong, so they gave us like – Oh. A little bit of structure that they already built, like uh, they, they they had opened the company, for example, but no name yet, nothing like that, no logo, no office space, no staff, no full time, no contracts, nothing. But it was it was literally starting from like scratch. Okay, and where like what was that like? So now that you'd been through the entire process, remember, you were there. So Vembi was not even a se- I mean, it was a separate company, right? But it was more like a separate vertical. But that whole infrastructure that you guys built kind of wasn't relevant per se. To building fintech, was it? It was very much so. I mean, when you say infrastructure, you're talking about like the basics of like humanity, which is talking about shelter, food, water, that sort of thing. Yep. So for an office, it would be like an office space. You know, where to source computers from, which internet provider to use, uh, which printer should you buy for your office, uh, where do you hire staff from? Do you already have existing portfolios or resumes you can pull people from? So all of those things are really basic for a company to breathe life into a company, for the company to begin. And I already had all those resources from doing years of work and, like, you know, building a company. So it was, like, instantaneous. Like, we got the office space within one month. We got internet up and running. We got offices, you know, staff coming in. And everything just started rolling really, really quickly. And it's the simple things that people take for granted. But, like, a lot of investors, when they first come into the country, or a lot of entrepreneurs, when they first start off, they're always, like, Okay, shoot, like, you know, which computer should I buy for my staff? I don't know. They spend a lot of time thinking about this. Right. I saved a lot of time thinking about that stuff because I already knew exactly what would need to be done. But the, here's one of the big differences for me, right? And something I've always wanted to ask you. When you joined Petloft, the story that was told was, you know, here's a guy who has like 16 dogs, right? And I'm exaggerating a little bit. But somebody who's That's been... That's a little passionate. bit of an exaggeration, yeah. Only a little, only a little, maybe 14. But anyway, the... um. The, the idea was that here's somebody who's passionate about pets, who's always been passionate about pets, and who spent, like you said, that startup weekend, the whole concept was let's build a social network for pets. So that was like on the brain. How did you get up to speed? You know, fintech is just a, for lack of a better term, and no pun intended, but it's a completely different animal, right? Yes and no. I mean, it's still selling online. So everything that I needed to know about selling things online in Thailand still applied. The only thing different was a product. And honestly, selling e-commerce products is the same thing. As much as I love my pets, I I knew only about 1% of selling pet products. Fair I didn't enough. know about the variety of pet products that there was. And baby products and you know cosmetics, electronics likewise as well. Um, you have your basic knowledge of you know what your wife wears for electronics. but hey, Sorry, your wife wears for makeup, but that's it. And everything else you have to do research on. It's the same thing with insurance. So I went – if you don't mind me saying, I went like balls in and just started reading books in Thai and started understanding exactly what the whole market was about and understanding what each product was. I went to training courses. I did the exam to, you know, for the license. I did everything that I needed to do to be up to speed and understand the product in and out. So tell me more about the product, right? I don't know enough about Frank to understand, but sort of give me, you know, not like the pitch, but just tell me exactly what you do and maybe how big the market is and then like where you guys have come if you can, right? Obviously, there's proprietary information there, but tell me about the development of the company. I'm, again, I'm really curious. You've been at it now for what, a year and a half? A year and a half. So we started with, you know, zero employees and now we're at 50 people in Thailand and 10 people in Hong Kong and 16 people in Portugal. 
uh, <clears throat> we actually launched in Taiwan as well, and we operated for six, seven months, and we sold the company to one of our investors in Hong Kong. In yeah, in so Hong that Kong. would be you know, in yeah, we sold. Sorry, in Taiwan, we operated in Taiwan, and we sold the company in Taiwan. Wow! Already. Already, okay, yeah, and, still- and all this is very low key because, like I said, we're so busy working and trying to grow the company that we don't even bother with press release or anything else like that. Yeah, but we're just trying to get. The- let, me, let me make a point here. I want to put a fine point on this, right? So I was talking to somebody yesterday, a visitor to Thailand from um, from another country, obviously. Yeah, and they said to me, "I said I was trying to help them. I was giving them advice on who they should meet, who they should talk to in the vertical in which they're operating in another country. They want to expand into Thailand." And they said, oh, we're going to meet whoever. I'm going to call that person, you know, Jim, because their name is not Jim. Because Jim is the most famous person in the thing who does that thing. And I said, well, yeah, that's true. But just because that person is the most well-known and the most famous, meaning the most prominent, meaning the person who's the most out there saying how great they are, doesn't necessarily mean either A, they're that that good at all, or that they're the best at anything. And I like what you said, because you're like, we're too busy, actually. I'm going to say it the way I like to say it, just getting shit done. Remember, we used to have those mugs, right? Get stuff done. I'm too busy getting stuff done to sort of walk around town telling people, beeping my horn, that I'm getting stuff done. So I build a company, I sell it, and I don't need the press release to prove to anybody that I'm good or bad or indifferent. That's just part of my business. Next. I'm just getting on to the next thing. And that's what I was trying to tell them yesterday. Like, Find the people who are in the trenches... And I say this a lot over the last few days with their nose to the grindstone, getting stuff done. And that's those are the real people that are going to help you expand in Thailand. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, again, in this case, obviously, it's not just me doing it myself. No, 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 I'm no. no. That's not what I meant. Right? You've got yeah. co-founders and a we team. Also have a, yeah, we have a great team here. We also have a regional CEO. Her name is Charlotte. She came from Kwandu, which is great experience and background in expanding regionally. So she she was one of the biggest pro what do you call it, proactives, uh, the ones pushing that deal in Taiwan. But we also have a great CPO who's the chief product officer. Uh, he came from eBay Australia. So you know we work like the three four of us together. But like you know we work hand in hand together to build this great product out. And right now our focus is solely on Thailand, and we're trying to crack the insurance market trying to sell car insurance, property insurance, um, everything that's not related to life online. And we try to get it done so that you can buy insurance 24 hours a day and get instantly covered. And that's that's the end goal. Like we're not without having to scale and hire 5,000 people in your company like most of our competitors are doing. So how do you do that? I mean, the website says get a quote in 60 seconds. But what does that mean? There must be a massive back-end infrastructure that's purely technology-based that's probably running a lot of algorithmic um, operations to try to figure out all of the sort of components of what makes up an insurance policy, no? That's right. We've, we've, we've got a 1,000 people in the back sitting there to calculate every single number that comes in, everything that you type. And No, I'm just kidding. It's really basic, actually. <laughs> We're actually reselling someone else. We're actually reselling someone else's insurance product, so we don't have to do the underwriting. That's what it's called. Uh, what we're doing is where we're repackaging their product and may- labeling it as ours. So we have an exclusive distribution agreement with Bangkok Insurance, I saw that. which is a really premium partner. And they work with us hand-in-hand to get the products out through Frank. Uh, what they benefit from is the fact that, well, one, we're the first broker agent that actually shares our customer database with them. And they are eventually going to be creating products that are specifically 
created for Frank because we're sharing our customer database so they can underwrite better. So you're telling me that like, and I'm going to say this, in the old days, they would have a branch, and I'm going to make up names, and obviously not, the towns aren't made up, but locations potentially are. So they'd have a branch in Konkan or they'd have a branch in like Samuprakan and, you know, <clears throat> those places in Phuket or wherever, and then they'd, they'd have resellers there. But are those resellers, they owned the data and they owned the database and they owned their clients. All they did was pay a commission or some sort of spread back to, to, um, to Bangkok Insurance. And what you're saying is you've got a more of a symbiotic relationship with them in the sense that you collect all the data associated with your clients and then say, here's what the makeup is. There's got to be a more specific targeted product that we can create for these people that's a win-win for everybody. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. That's, that's new. What I think. That's it new, just, right? It, it just takes yeah. It just takes time to collect all the product, all the data. Yeah, I mean, so and how is that going? And is it? Do you expect this to be sort of a Thai-only product, or do you have goals to expand outside of Thailand into the rest of the region? And does it matter really? I mean, even if it's just a Thailand product, the market software insurance is massive. You're talking about a couple of billion dollars in Thailand alone, and this is still a very underinsured market, mind it is, you. It is massively I mean, underinsured. I don't think most people know that, actually. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're just looking at car insurance now. We haven't even tapped into the motorcycle insurance yet, which is majority of what the people drive in Thailand. So we've got a long way to go. And insurance is not an easy game because it's much longer term. The, you know, the renewal cycle is one year as opposed to customers coming back to you next week for e-commerce. So right. you really have to change your mindset and think really, really long term. Service is very important. And I've been a big proponent of actually good, having good service ever since my Orami Moxie days. Right. I mean, so actually getting, I'm actually getting to you know, live, that, live that out here and create a product that actually has some amazing service which actually allows us to sell products at a premium price compared to our competitors. Right, I mean, and, and that actually takes price out of the equation. And by doing that, at least I'm not cutting my prices or giving discounts, which makes me a lot more profitable. Right. You've hit the internet at a sweet spot, actually, in time. And that is no longer is it the place where everything just trades at zero. Right. And yeah, you don't I have to discount that. stuff just to sell stuff. I think the market's moving back towards I I premium did. products, yeah. right? So. The point of selling online is for convenience, and somewhere along the line, people have forgotten that and just started selling online because it's cheaper, or buying online because it's cheaper. Yes, it should be. It could be a little bit cheaper because they're saving costs by not having a retail store. But there's a lot of other costs associated with selling online that people don't realize. Um, and the customers, unfortunately, have been trained in a way where you know cheap is better, cheap is better online, buy online because it's cheaper. It will take time for the market to change their mindset there. Uh, but I think it is the way to go because we got to get convenience as a main selling point here. Yeah, and the reality is that you kind of get what you pay for. Always, especially with insurance. I mean, it's all about after-sales service, so we really have to make that very clear to our customers. But does that mean you guys maintain a um, like a call center? If I have a problem or just a question, I can call somebody. And do you sell products to English-speaking people as well, or is it just to Thai-speaking people? No, we sell to both English and Thai. Actually, I'm I'm the one doing the sales for the English people myself. So every <laughs> every customer that comes in as an English customer, I talk to them myself and make sure I give them the best service I can give them. Do you, um, do you tell them that they're talking to the, to the founder? <laughs> I, yeah, they don't know that they're talking to the founder, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it, one, it helps me connect to the customer at the super basic level, so I know what the customers are looking for, and it keeps me grounded as well. Because one, I'm always motivating my team. Then, right? If my 
call center team or like you know, which is about thirty people strong, oh, look yes. and see, hey, look, the CEO and co-founder is actually getting on a phone call and actually selling to the customer, and he's doing better than we are. That's that's saying something. Like you know, this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. It's it's like that you know that whole army general commander type thing. If you know that your general has been through a lot of battles and have come out on the right end of it and has won with dignity. You're more likely to follow that general than someone who's just a pencil pusher who got promoted. Right. Yeah. Or frankly, whose dad was a general. I mean, that's the hardest thing to follow anyway, right? So fair enough. (laughs) But what do you see, right? And you were telling your story earlier, which was really interesting, right? So you're the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son, right? The first son of the third generation. Do you go back, like, do you want to run an existing business or do you just want to keep building them? You seem so energized, and I mean that, like, really, honestly, like, you just seem so energized with and excited about building this business and you're, what, a year and a half in. Once it sort of reaches scale and kind of cruising altitude, which, you know, maybe it never does, meaning it never gets big enough for you to be satisfied, but let's say it does. Do you see anything else coming, right? You kind of saw this fintech wave coming. Is there something else you see coming that you want to be involved with? I think next would be agricultural technology. I mean, uh, but again, that's very different. Uh, I mean, if you're actually asking about trends, yeah, I think agricultural technology is probably the next big thing that's coming up really, really soon. Um, for me, though, uh, I, I'm addicted to challenges. Let's put it that way. Okay? Yeah. Whether it's a new business or an old business, is the challenges that I'm addicted to. So, for example, if I were to join my family's business tomorrow, would I be very, very enthusiastic and passionate about it? Definitely, because I know if I go in there, there are so many things that I could do and change to optimize it, to help them save costs, to do so many other things that are not done at the moment, which I could do. Uh, at this business, I know what the challenges are. So I know every day that I wake up what challenge I have to tackle and what fire I have to put out and what road I have to pave. pave. So it will be the same thing. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a new company. I like that actually. I think that's what I'm going to call this episode. Harper and Dua, addicted to challenges. I mean it. I think that's a really great, it's a great way to put into words exactly how you feel about running a business. And whether it's a new thing or an old, whether it's a new business or an old business, in a way, it kind of doesn't matter. The challenges might be different, but the addiction to them is kind of the same, right? Exactly. I, I love solving problems. It's fun. It's what I wake up for every day. And that's, every day is a different problem that I have to deal with. And I enjoy it thoroughly. Look, I think that's a great way to end, if you don't mind. Not at all. My voice is about to disappear soon. Yeah, I don't want to have that happen. <laughs> Look, let me just say, let me just say, thank you so much for coming on. As you said earlier, right? One of the things you don't do is, you know, go to events and waste time. So I hope you don't think that this was a waste of time. It was not a waste of time for me at any level. And I think that the story you've been telling is actually really compelling, and people will really enjoy listening to it. So I really appreciate your time. Not at all. This is definitely not a waste of time. I didn't have to go out and find you. You found me. It was very easy. (laughs) All I have to do is pick up a phone and talk to you. (laughs) You you are awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure. Bye. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.